The following is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. We'll be, I'll be teaching from James chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to be looking at the perfecting work or the refining work of trials in our life. So that's where we're, we're going today. Now when we hear that word, trials, it's, it's not fun. We don't like to go through trials. We seldom see trials as a good thing in our life. And I think right now, especially as we're dealing with the whole coronavirus, the lockdown, we're starting to deal with um, trials and just um, hardships. And we don't think of those as a good thing. It makes sense because they're not fun. But as Christians, we need to approach our trials with a different perspective. We need to remember that we're, we're new creatures in Christ, as Todd was just saying. We're to have a different perspective because God uses these trials to refine us. He uses those trials to make us um, stronger in our walk with Christ. I think there's a, a wonderful illustration in nature. Some of you have, may have heard this illustration before. I may have even used it, but I think it's appropriate uh, for this lesson. There's a, a moth called the Secropia moth. It starts as a caterpillar, obviously, and as it becomes a moth, it goes into this cocoon, and the cocoon is very thick, very, very hard to get out of. So the moth has to, has to work really hard to kind of just work its way out of the cocoon and break the cocoon. Well, there was a man who decided he wanted to try to help the, the moth get out of the cocoon quicker to alleviate that struggle. So what he did is he took a razor blade, and he sliced down the side of the cocoon, and the moth just fell to the ground. Now, the problem with that was, now that the moth was on the ground, it couldn't fly because the wings weren't strengthened from trying to get out of that cocoon. As it, as it worked and struggled to get out of that cocoon, its wings were strengthened. So when that was cut short, it fell to the ground, it was crippled, and eventually it's either going to be stepped on or eaten by a predator or it'll just die of starvation because that struggle that was needed to make it stronger was cut short. And you see, it's the same with us as Christians. We need to be sure that we're not cutting our trials short. When we, when we face trials, we're being refined and being made more like Christ, and we don't want to cut those trials short. Now, in our text this morning... We're going to see from James three characteristics of God-honoring suffering that a believer should employ so that we can endure to the end and be stronger when we come out the other side of trials or, or suffering. We'll see that we should have a joyful attitude as we face our trials. We'll also see that we should have an understanding mind. Now, when I say understanding mind, I mean an understanding because of the fact that we've been through trials. We have an experiential knowledge. We've seen how God has been faithful in the past and how he has been, brought us through these trials and made us stronger on the other side. So we have an understanding of that. And we look to scripture and we see these individuals in scripture who've had the same thing. So we have an understanding, that, an experiential understanding that God is faithful and he will bring us through and make us stronger. And then thirdly, we'll see that we should have a, a submissive heart as we approach these trials. Have a submissive heart. As I said, don't try to short circuit what God is doing in our lives. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read James chapter 1, 
verses 1 through 4. And then we'll come back and we'll dig into this text. But before we do that, I wanted to recommend a few books on suffering. As we're dealing with, with different suffering and, tr and tr trials, I want to just rec recommend a few books. One of those books is by uh, Greg Harris. It's called The Cup and the Glory, Lessons on Suffering and the Glory of God. It's a wonderful, wonderful book on suffering and how we as Christians should deal with that. So you might want to pick that one up. The Cup and the Glory by Greg Harris. He was one of my uh, professors in seminary. Another one is, Is God Really in Control? by Jerry Bridges. Trusting God in a World of Hurt. I think that's a wonderful resource as well. It has a chapter in here on um, growing through adversity. And he talks about James 1, 2, and 4. So, Is God Really in Control? by Jerry Bridges. That's one you might want to pick up. And then a third one is called Maturity, Growing Up and, and Going On in the Christian Life by Sinclair Ferguson. It's also a really good book on maturing in your walk with Christ, and it has a chapter called um, Coping with Suffering. It's another very good resource you might want to pick up as you're um, studying about suffering or, or dealing with suffering. So those are just some resources. I thought this is a, an equipping hour class. This isn't a, a sermon, so I wanted to show you some, some good resources that you might want to pick up. All right, well, let's go ahead and read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, then I'll pray and we'll come back and dig into the text. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you this morning. We're just so thankful uh, for your word. Lord, as we face uh, different trials in our life, and as we face um, different situations with um, this whole uh, coronavirus and the things that are taking place in the world today, I pray that we would uh, remember your sovereignty, that we would trust in you, and we would understand how we should approach uh, trials in our life, how we should approach um, suffering and, and anxiety and so many different things in our life, that we should trust in you, knowing that you are in control, remembering who we are in Christ, remembering our position before the holy God of the universe as believers. I pray that we would remember that, Lord. As we work through this text today, be glorified through it. Help us to um, just grow as we, um, we, we, we look at the text and as we desire to be obedient to it. I pray for those uh, members of Maranatha Bible Church who uh, may be struggling today, who may be lonely and who are just um, struggling with being separated from the body. I pray that you would encourage them through this message, that they would um, dig into the word and just draw closer to you through this time. And that we also would be engaging in the one another's, as Todd said. And as we've heard over the last month, we would just be engaging in these and bringing glory and honor to you. We give this entire lesson over to you now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we look at the book of James, the first thing we need to do before we dig into these characteristics that James lays out is just look at a few things. Who wrote the book? Uh, when did he write it? Why did he write it? Well, the very, the very first word in the book tells us who wrote it. It says, James, 
a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think that's very significant that James calls himself, you look at the text, he calls himself a slave of God. Now, your Bible probably says a bondservant, but the word is doulos, and it's quite literally slave. So James is referring to himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's significant because James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, as well as the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So for him not to refer to himself as the leader in the Jerusalem church or the half-brother of Christ is significant. It shows how humble this man was. He had a humble spirit, and he was humbly writing this letter. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's significant. So James is the one who wrote it. Now, who did he write this to? Who, who was he sending this letter to? Well, the text tells us, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. So James, a slave of God, a leader in the Jerusalem church, he's writing this letter to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. So what, what happened in Jerusalem was there was this, this persecution of Christians. So at the time the persecution was taking place, Christians were, were scattered all over the place. And these were Jewish Christians who were scattered all over the place. We say, well, how do we know that he's writing to believers when he says to the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, one reason is because he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He wouldn't be writing that just to, to Jewish people if they weren't believers. And then secondly, in verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren. So we know that James is writing this letter to the Jewish believers who've been scattered abroad because of this persecution that's taking place. Now, when was it written? Well, we don't know from the text when it was written, but we have a pretty good idea. It was written sometime between 44 and 49 AD. And how do we know that? Well, because if it would have been written after 49 AD, James surely would have mentioned the Jerusalem council that took place in 49 AD. But he doesn't mention that at all. So we can be fairly confident that it was written between 44 and 49 AD. So we know who, was, who, who wrote the book. We know who it was written to. We know fairly well when it was written. Now why was it written? Why did James feel the need to write this book to those Jewish believers who'd been dispersed abroad? Well, he wrote it to encourage and instruct these individuals. Remember, they're going through these, these extreme trials right now, so he wanted to encourage them. And then also, as you read the book of James, which, by the way, I would suggest you do. If you haven't read it or if you haven't read it in a while, I would suggest today you just go through and you read the whole book of James. And you'll see there's an enormous amount of instruction in there. It's almost like the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's very practical. He talks about faith without works is dead. He talks about not showing partiality and all different instructions in the book of James. So that's why he's writing this, to give encouragement to these believers who are facing persecution and trials and to instruct them in various various areas. So that's, that's why he wrote it. Now, when we come to verse 2, this is when we begin to see these three characteristics coming forth. Three God-honoring characteristics that we should have as we face trials in our life. And the first one we see right there in verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
So consider it all joy when you face various trials. Now there's three aspects of this exhortation here. We could break it down. We see, first of all, the call by James to consider it as joyful. And then secondly, we see the certainty of these trials. And then finally, he, he ends this verse by talking about the, the multidimensional nature of the trials. So let's just look at each. First of all, the call to consider trials as joyful. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren. Now that word there that's used for all joy, your translation may say all joy, but I think a better translation is consider it pure joy. And if you're using the NIV, they actually translated it like that. Consider it pure joy, my brethren. I think that's a, a great translation. Notice James doesn't say, just deal with it. Just deal with it, move on, try to slug your way through these trials and get, get past it. No, he says, consider it all joy, my brethren or pure joy. Ponder these things deeply. See them as pure joy. Now notice he doesn't say be happy in your trials. No, he doesn't say be happy. You see, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness in large part is based on what? It's based on your circumstances. If things are going good in your life, if you've got a good job, if your marriage is doing well, your health is there, your children are on track, they're obedient, then you're generally happy. If some of those things change, you lose your job, your marriage starts to fall apart, your, your children go off the rails, any of these types of things, well then you're maybe not so happy anymore. Your joy is not based on your circumstances. You see, joy is based on your position before the holy God of the universe. You, my friend, if you're a Christian, you have a right legal standing before the holy God of the universe. You will never taste hell. That's what your joy is based on, not on your circumstances. Your circumstances change, and your happiness can change, but not your joy. Your joy is much, much deeper than that, or it should be. Now, the next thing he points out is the certainty of trials. Notice he says here, when you encounter various trials. He doesn't say if or maybe. He says when. When you encounter various trials. It's a foregone conclusion that you will face trials in this life. And James says, when you face trials, consider them as pure joy. Mm. And then he goes on to point out the nature. He says, when you encounter various trials. Now the specific nature of the trial he's talking about here is the persecution. I mean that's the context of what's taking place. The, these 12 tribes, these, these Christian Jews have been, who have been scattered are facing persecution, but the, the word that he uses, various trials, indicates a multi-dimensional facet to these trials. So every trial you face, whatever trial it may be, consider it as pure joy we can go back in Scripture and we can see examples of this all through Scripture. Individuals who didn't allow their circumstances to dictate their joy. One example would be Joseph. I mean, think about that. Joseph was despised by his brothers. His brothers hated him because his father, Jacob, loved him more than them because he was Rachel's son. So 
his brothers were jealous. They despised him. They hated him. Uh, at one point, they were going to kill him. And one of the brothers said, no, let's, let's not kill him. So what do they do? They throw him in a well. They see these band of gypsies going by. They take him out of the well. They say, let's sell him into slavery. They sell him to, into slavery. He goes to Egypt as a slave. He's sold to Potiphar, who seems to be a fairly good master. But in the process of this, Potiphar's wife lies about him, says that he's trying to seduce her when in actuality she's trying to seduce him. Potiphar gets mad, throws him in jail. These are the circumstances that Joseph was dealing with. And then at the end of Genesis, we see that his brothers come to him. After their father dies, Jacob dies, his brothers come to him and say, Joseph, our brother, or our father asked that you not um, take revenge on us. Because they were thinking Joseph was like them. That's what they would do. They would take revenge. They would want to get back at him. But not so with Joseph. We look at what Joseph says in Genesis 50. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to accomplish what is now being done. You see, my friend, God will always use trials for his glory and for your good in the end. Joseph had a joyful attitude knowing that God was sovereign. Whatever happened to him, God was sovereign. Was he always happy? Probably not, but he was always joyful because the joy goes much deeper. Is that true with you? Can you say that? Is the joy in your life based on your position before God? Or are you basing it on your circumstances? We see an example of this in the New Testament. Many examples. We can see the Apostle Paul. Paul and Silas. They're in Acts 16. 22 through 26. We see Paul and Silas thrown in prison in Philippi. Let me read the text. Acts chapter 22, or Acts, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 26. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So this is the circumstances they're in here. And listen to what it says. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. You see that? Paul and Silas were, their, their, their robes were torn off of them. They were falsely accused. Their robes were torn off them. They were naked, essentially. It says they were ordered to be beaten with rods when they had struck them with many blows. So they were hurting. They were beaten with rods, struck with many blows, and then they were thrown in the prison. And that's not enough. It says when the guard was told to keep them securely, he threw them into the inner prison. So they were in the darkest, smelliest coldest part of this prison. This wasn't like a jail cell we may see on television or when we go to visit somebody in jail where you have a, a bunk bed, you have a sink, a toilet, heat, electricity, running water. No, not at all. This was a pit. They were thrown in there probably naked, no electricity, no heat. It was cold. And 
some of the, sometimes in, in the ancient Rome, when these types of dungeons, you will call it, were filled to capacity with prisoners, sometimes they would flood them with sewage from the city to drown the prisoners and then drain it and put new prisoners in. So that, that's the circumstances that Paul and Silas are in here. And are they complaining? Are they grumbling? No. The text says, they were singing praise to God. They were praising God. That's amazing. They weren't basing their joy on their circumstances. They knew their joy came from their position before God. They came from God. They knew it was deeper. We could go back a few chapters and we could say, uh, see a similar situation with uh, Peter and John. In Acts chapter 5, we see that they were told not to speak anymore in the name of Christ by the council, by the religious council. Let's just read that. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 41. Gamaliel just told them um, to let these men go. So that's where we come, we're coming into the text. It says, They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his namesake. They were rejoicing during their trials. They were considering it an honor to suffer for the name of Christ. We need to have the same perspective as we face trials in our life. We need to approach these trials with, with a joyful attitude, a joy that surpasses understanding, a joy that's beyond our circumstances. Now, I'm not saying you rejoice in the circumstances, perhaps. You don't rejoice when perhaps your child dies at a young age. You don't rejoice in that or when you're, you, you lose your spouse. You don't rejoice in that circumstance. You don't rejoice when you go to the doctor and perhaps you get the diagnosis of, of cancer or something, something else. You don't rejoice in that circumstance. You don't rejoice when your marriage that you've been working so hard at is beginning to crumble. And regardless of how hard you try, it's falling apart. We don't rejoice in those circumstances. We don't rejoice when we, we lose our job. When we financially, we don't know where our next rent check is going to come from or our mortgage payment or our next meal. We don't rejoice in those circumstances. But we rejoice in knowing that God is in control of these circumstances. In every circumstance that comes our way, God will use it for His glory and for our good. That's where we rejoice. We rejoice in that, knowing that God's in control of these things. Praise God that He uses these things to make Him make us more like Him. Rejoice in that. Meditate on His Word. Renew your mind with the truth. Romans 12, 2, be renewing your mind. Be drawing closer to God. These times should cause us to draw closer to Him, not to pull away. A Christian who can't rejoice in their trials based on their position before God, based on who Christ is, they have an unbiblical perspective, ungodly perspective. They're not trusting in Christ. 
We need to deal with our, our trials based on our position before a holy God. Remember the old hymn by Horatio Spatford. It says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Remember that when you're facing trials. Praise the Lord that he's in control and nothing happens to you that's out of his control. Have a joyful attitude when you approach these trials in your life. Now, the, the second characteristic that James shows us here is in verse 3. It says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So it's an understanding mind. So we're to have a joyful attitude when we face trials, and then we're to have an understanding mind. And when I say understanding mind, as I said, it's an experiential understanding. You've been through trials before. God has brought you through and made you strong. You have an experiential knowledge, if you will. You can look back at both God's faithfulness to you, but you can also look back in Scripture, and you can see God's faithfulness to other saints. You can go back to Hebrews chapter 11, for instance, and you can look at these, this hall of faith, these individuals who went through trials and they were refined and they came through the other side stronger. We could look to Hebrews 11, just one instance. In, chapter, in verses 24 through 26, it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. There it is. Moses considered the reproach of Christ richer, greater riches than the treasures of this world. Moses considered it all joy when he faced trials of, of many kind. Remember these truths as you face trials. Look back to God's faithfulness in your life and the faithfulness to other believers and understand that God is, is faithful. He will bring you through these trials. Have an understanding of that. The Lord is refining you. He's making you more like Christ. I think of a, a goldsmith. You know, a goldsmith has a, a big cauldron or a, a pot, whatever, and he puts the impure gold in the pot and he heats the pot up. He heats it up to extreme heat until the gold melts and the impurities come to the top. And then he, he scrapes the impurities off. And he heats up the gold again until more impurities come to the top, to the surface, the dross. And he scrapes it off again. And he continues to heat it up and scrape it off until the goldsmith can see his face in the gold. And beloved, that's what Christ is doing to you and me. He's heating us up. He wants to see his face 
in us. And he uses these trials to do that. Praise God for that. Praise him that he's doing these things in your life. Don't miss that. So, approach trials with a joyful attitude. A joy that, that comes from something outside of yourself. A joy that surpasses understanding. Approach trials with an, an experiential understanding mind, knowing that he's, he's been faithful in the past to bring you through and make you stronger. And he will do it again. And then thirdly, we see in verse 4, James tells us where to approach trials with a submissive heart. With a submissive heart. He says in verse 4, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice there, he says, let endurance. Don't try to, to, to short-circuit it, as we said. Don't try to cut it short. Let it have its way. Be submissive to what God's doing in your life. Be submissive there. Don't be constantly just trying to feel better. I just want to get away from this situation because it's uncomfortable. I don't like the struggles that I'm going through, so I want to go around it. I want to, I want to leave this or I want to leave that. No, be submissive to what God's doing because I tell you what, if he doesn't, he's going to accomplish the purpose that he has intended. He will accomplish that purpose one way or another. And if you run from it, this situation where you're, you're struggling and where you're suffering, he'll bring another. That's how God works because he, he's going to complete the purposes that he has for you. We can see an example of this in Jonah. In Jonah. Jonah ran the other way when God told him to go to Nineveh. He ran the other way. He, he finally shows reluctant obedience, but his motives were not wrong. He, his motives were not right. He, he was bitter, but he shows reluctant obedience. And then he complains about God's mercy in the end. Don't be like Jonah. Have a submissive heart. You know, I, I want to tell you an illustration. I used to work at a door company many, many years ago. Probably, man, 20, 20 some years ago. And I remember when I started working at this company, I worked in the closet department. We would go to new tracks of homes and we would install wire closets or sometimes the laminate. And that was just what we did. There's two of us. And the man that I worked with when I first started working there was just so hard to work with. He was always on me, telling me I'm never doing good enough, going to the boss and complaining about me. And I never did anything to this guy, but he just didn't like me. And he was on me all the time, all the time on me, telling me to do this, do this different. I'm doing this wrong. I'm doing that wrong. So I eventually went to the boss of the company and I said, hey, is there any way I can move inside the shop and work on doors instead of doing closets? I didn't tell him why, but he said, sure. So he moved me away from working with that individual, and he put me in the shop. And I thought, oh, this is great. Finally, I don't have to work with that guy anymore. And my, one of my friends was the supervisor. So I'm working in the, the door department now. I'm running the casing machine for a couple months, and then I moved to the door machine. And eventually, I was moved up to uh, the door hanging position, which was the big position there. You know, So that's where I was. But I still had a supervisor who was over the whole department. Well. Eventually, that supervisor, who was my friend, gets another job. So he leaves. And I'm thinking, okay, now the boss is going to move me into that position. I'll be the supervisor of the, the whole department there. It was just a natural move, I thought. 
That wasn't the case. He moves somebody from outside in to be my supervisor. And this guy was worse than the guy in closets. It was, it was horrible. I remember he was always on me, just riding me all the time. And I'd only been a Christian for a couple years. And so I used to turn on a Christian radio station. We had this radio that we could listen to in the department. I would have it on the Christian radio station. Every morning this guy would come in, he would turn it to Howard Stern. Some of you may know who Howard Stern is, some of you may not, but it's a filthy radio show. And he would turn it up all the way. And he wouldn't let any of us touch it. So that's what I was dealing with. And I thought, oh, man, I just, I can't deal with this. And I'm going to, should I leave? Should I just run away from this as well? But I said, you know what? I stepped back and I prayed. I began to draw closer to the Lord. I said, what should I do here? And I decided I was going to not quit, but I was going to love this man. I was going to pray for this man every single day. When I came into work, I was going to serve him. I was going to do more than what he asked me to do. I was going to ask him if there's anything I could pray for him about. I was going to go out and buy him lunch and bring it back to him. He wouldn't go out to lunch with me. He didn't like me. But that's what I started doing. I started praying for him every day. And I asked the Lord to give me a true love for this man, to change my heart for this man. And one day, after about six months, I'm working, came in early, I'm working. I didn't change the station, I left it on his station. He comes in early that morning. He goes over to the radio and he turns it to the Christian station. I was blown away. I was like, okay. I kept praying for him. A couple days later, he comes in and he says, Joe, I was wondering if you'd like to go to lunch with me. I fell back on my, on my heels. I couldn't believe this guy was, he was transforming in front of my eyes. So I went to lunch with him and I started speaking, you know, we started talking about the Bible, sharing the gospel with him. And we became close, close friends. And soon after this, probably a month after this, he ends up leaving that company, getting a different job and I was placed in his position. I would have missed out on all those blessings and his friendship, because he still kept calling me after I left there. If I would have ran away from that situation, the Lord was, was working in me. He was doing a mighty work. He was refining me. He gave me a love for this man because I changed how I approached it. I, I, I approached it from a godly perspective, and I began to love this man. Praise God. That's how we need to approach these things. I'm so thankful that I can look back and see what he's doing. And I'm glad I didn't run away from it again. Because he will accomplish it. You run away from it, I ran away from it in the closets, he put another guy right there. So don't run away from it. Be submissive to what God is doing in these trials. Don't let anything clip your cocoon, as it were, if we go back to our original illustration, to cut short the, the refining process in your life. Submit to the Lord and allow the hardship, allow the persecution or trials to run their course in your life. Rejoice and praise God that He's bringing you through these trials. He knows what He's doing. He's sovereign. Even though you may not see what He's doing, He knows what He's doing. As I close here, I just want to read a, a quick excerpt from this book that my professor wrote. It's a wonderful, wonderful expert excerpt on showing us how God, even though we may not know what God's doing, He knows what He's doing. So let me read this, and then we'll close. 
A few years ago, I received an invitation to perform a wedding on the eastern shore of Maryland. I asked my daughter, Lauren, who was four years old at the time, if she wanted to go with me. It was her first wedding, and she responded with the refreshment enthusiasm of, of an excited child. The trip, however, took a little longer than her young mind imagined it would take. As she sat in the front of the car in her car seat, Lauren had only a limited view of the highway in front of her. About halfway through the trip, she began to question me. Where are we, Daddy? We're right where we should be, darling. But I can't see where we're going. But I can, and I can see well enough for the both of us. I've never been this far away from home, Daddy, but I have. I don't know how we'll get there, but I do. And I'm the one taking you there. After a while, Lauren ran out of questions, but she still did not feel very secure about where we were going. The massive bridge over the Chesapeake Bay particularly frightened her as we approached it. Lauren had never before seen anything so large, and she was not convinced it was a good idea for us to cross it. Before she could begin questioning me again, I looked over at her and assured her, Lauren, I didn't ask you to figure out how to cross the bridge, and I didn't ask you to go alone. I asked you to go with me, and you said you wanted to. I will take you where you need to be. Good night, Daddy. Good night, Lauren. I'll let you know when we get there. Friends, God will take us where we need to be. We can trust him. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this text. Thank you for reminding us that we can trust in you. Lord, help us to remember as we face trials and suffering in our life that we would face them with a joyful attitude, knowing who we are before God, knowing that we have a right legal standing and knowing that you are sovereign and in control. We would approach these trials with an understanding mind, understanding from experience that you've been faithful in the past and you will refine us and bring us, bring us through. And that we would approach these things with a submissive heart, not trying to short circuit what you're doing, but allowing you to, to do your work in our lives. We love you. We praise you. We give all the glory and honor to you in Christ's holy name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.